Well, if you have a Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, We're going to be starting the last chapter of the book of Hebrews and the the sort of home stretch of a series that's been an entire year for us. Uh, It's kind of sad, actually, to me to to be putting Hebrews behind us. It's been such a joy to, to... think about carefully and to talk about and to to see it reverberating in our congregation and starting to shape people's lives uh we're going to finish strong with with chapter 13 as this chapter takes all the stuff that's been said in the first 12 chapters and starts to put it into some practical steps for us now if you're here today and you're considering christianity um then what you see in the first six verses of chapter 13 might surprise you a little bit Because my guess is what you've thought about Christianity is what you could rightly think about most of the world's religions. That that the way that you behave, the nature of your lifestyle, determines how God thinks about you. That in order to gain an entrance, to become an insider in this faith, there's a certain standard that's got to be met. That you are who who you are based on how you perform. And that's the natu- that is the way that, that most of the world's religions are built. Uh, it's the way that Christianity has unfortunately been practiced by a lot of people and even by us at different times in our lives. But it is not the way that Christianity is set up for us in the pages of the New Testament. It's actually radically wrong. What the New Testament consistently says is that the behavior that's necessary for Christians It's an expression of a status you already have and you can't lose because it's been given to you by grace. It is not the means by which you get a certain status, but a way that you express a status that you already have. You see, if you you see your behavior, how well you perform, as the way that you gain a certain status, then it's always going to end up separating you from other people. It's going to be the way that you know that you are not them, right? It leads to things like racism, it leads to things like, like a, a general judgmental and condescending attitude that we've all probably been guilty of and experienced at the hands of other people. And if, if you are how you perform, then that's a natural way to feel about others. But if your behavior only comes from what you already have, from who you are because of what someone else has done to you and given to you, then it frees you up to treat people in a radically different way. It frees you up to treat people not as competition, not as objects for exploitation, not as something to be feared, but as someone that you can invest in, someone to give to. And when you treat other people that way, what you're showing is that you're living a life of gratitude for what you already have, not a life in pursuit of something you don't have. These first six verses spell out for us what it would look like to live a life of gratitude for what you've been given rather than a life trying to attain something you don't already have. Now let me, let me give you another angle on this, one that really puts it better in, in, in its place in the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews has talked about worship a lot. Especially it's talked about the different kind of sacrifices that people in the Old Testament had to do if they were going to be able to relate to God. And the whole system for worship in the Old Testament the temple and all of its chambers and the sacrifices and the washings that you had to do to worship there. That whole system of worship, the way it was defined, was to express that God is inapproachable, that he is so holy you can't get to him because you're not worthy. It was set up to show you what you did not have. 
Hebrews' main message has been now everything that you didn't have, that status that was, you were reminded of every time you went to the temple and had to sacrifice or wash yourself has now been given to you as a gift because Jesus has sacrificed himself for you perfectly, making that whole system obsolete. So now, now there's no need for that form of worship. Worship then was all about expressing something that you didn't have, access to God. So if you do have access to God, if you are already what you're supposed to be, because of Jesus, then how do you worship? The whole system was set up for that time. What does worship look like in this time? Worship is, was introduced to us at the end of chapter 12 that we looked at last week. It called on us to have gratitude and by our gratitude to, sh- to live a life of worship that's worthy of God. And I think that these six verses are what it looks like for us to worship him now. We don't go to the temple. We don't wash ourselves. We don't make sacrifices because we're already in if we have faith in him. What it looks like to respond to what he's given to us is now what defines our worship. It's a grateful life. And these verses spell out what, the, what that might look like. That's where we're headed this morning. Now, if you found uh, Hebrews chapter 13, please stand with me in honor of God's word. I'm going to read the first six verses for us this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is God's word. You can be seated. I think the first thing, the first mark, and really a mark that that stands over all that comes after this, the first mark of someone whose life is shaped by gratitude for what you've been given is love. And throughout the New Testament, love is what defines disciples of Jesus. Jesus himself said, they'll know that you're with me because of the way that you love each other. Love is the chief mark of a community that's brought together by God's grace. And this kind of love is defined here as a brotherly or a family style of love. That would have been radical in its own time. People knew what it was to, to love your family distinctly at that time. Family meant a lot, perhaps more then than it does now. But it was crazy. It would have been unimaginable to them to apply the kind of love for your family, that you have for your family, to people not in your family. What he's saying here is that Christians now, what, what unites us as a family is not who we were born into, what our genes are, but what we confess the hope that's ours in Jesus. That's what defines us. And, and in that community, we're to love each other like a family. Now, I think that there's a reason that kind of love was radical then and even, even more radical perhaps today. My sense is when we say love, what we mean by it a lot of times is, uh, is, is that we are attracted to something about this, this or that object. There's something about it that fulfills us or that we enjoy, that we want. And that's what establishes our love. That's what defines it, right? So I might say that I love a certain restaurant, you know, that I really enjoy the, the food that's on their menu. Or I might say that I love a particular uh, book or a TV show. You know, I say I love the Andy Griffith show, 
Right. Just out of curiosity, how many people have watched the Andy Griffith Show? I mean, it's about half of you. I'm actually a little bit surprised by that. Um, that's good. It lives on, right? But, and, and there's obvious reasons why I would love a show like that. I mean, it's brilliant. It's insights into human nature, into rural culture, bluegrass music, etc. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. But when I say that I love The Andy Griffith Show, it's not, it's not really a familial love, and here's why. I love the first five seasons, the ones that are in black and white, the ones that, where Don Knotts plays Barney Fife. But after that... Unfortunately, the show continues for another three or four years with no Barney. It's in color. It's pretty lame. So my love for the show ends at season five. Because my, what I mean by love when I say that I love that show is that there's things about the show that I like, right? That, that I'm attracted to, that I enjoy. My love is not a committed sort of love. It's a consumer's sort of love, Right? The same way that a restaurant that I love, if they had some sort of dramatic change to their menu, I might stop loving them. I have no commitment to them. That's a lot of times what we mean by love. And I think even with these little silly examples, you can see how we treat relationships that way. You know, I love you so long as you seem to be meeting my needs, so long as I like the way you make me feel about myself, so long as I'm getting what I want from you. But relationships end when that sort of love plays out. What defines Christian community is the love of a family, a love that's, that's based on ties that are established by God that aren't random but that are inherited. And in this case, it's not the inheritance of certain genes but the inheritance of a common identity as children of God. That's something appointed by Him, something that God's providence puts on us. And if that's the case, then it doesn't, it doesn't stop whenever these people start letting us down. That's what He means by brotherly love, a love that outlasts the, time, the point at which you stop getting what you want out of that relationship that survives it because that's how God loves us. I think that the rest of the points throughout the rest of these verses are really just ways of fleshing out what this kind of brotherly love looks like. So I want to move on down our list to the next one that he gives us. A grateful life first is, is marked by love because having been loved well, despite who we are, not because of who we are. We love others in this same way. But a grateful life is also marked by hospitality. By hospitality. This one is also all through the New Testament. You will be known by the fact that you show hospitality to people. And I think we all kind of know what hospitality is. It's, It's a sort of inviting of someone into your sphere. It's making someone who was an outsider to you an insider for you. Having them in your home. Giving them food. That's what it is to show hospitality. It's an expression of grace and belonging. And here he says, especially you're supposed to show hospitality to strangers, to people that you don't already know. And I think we can see how a grateful life would look like this, right? Because one who knows that apart from Jesus, we were outsiders. We were not part of his family. We were unworthy of his very presence, but, have, but God has come to us, has pursued us, and brought us in. If you're grateful for that identity that you get from, from the gospel, then you will, sh- you will go towards other people in that same way. You won't just hunker down with people that you're comfortable with, right? Because ultimately, this brotherly love we've talked about has a downside to it. If it becomes imbalanced and you just love the people you already love, and you aren't looking outside of yourself to the quote-unquote strangers that you might could bring into your community, then you're going to become isolated and you're going to stop showing the fullness of what God has done for you. 
What, what hospitality looks like is having this community of love, but having open doors for this community that you're constantly trying to bring other people into. As that's what God has done us, done for us. He has relentlessly pursued us in a hospitality that's modeled on his love, that's driven by gratitude and by, for what we've received in him, is going to go after people. I think there's a lot of ways to apply this. Um, I think one of them is that I, I, what I've prayed for our church culture and what I've seen happen in our church culture is that we're constantly looking for, for new people who come to our church to include in what we're already doing as a body. I think we have a lot of great things going on that express our love for each other as a family. And one of the great ways of showing forth the gospel is not being content with that, but constantly looking for new people to target, to invite into what we enjoy. That's what Christian hospitality looks like. I, that means inviting people over for dinner. It means all the things you would think about when you think about hospitality. But I, I think the underlying all of that, what I want us to really latch onto, is a mindset that is constantly looking for people on the outside of our sphere that God has put us in contact with that we can bring to the inside. Looking for people on the outside that we can bring to the inside. And honestly, the further on the outside that they are, the more fringe this or that person might be, the more friendless, the more beautiful the expression of the gospel when we bring them in. Because when we bring in someone who's not going to elevate our status in anybody's eyes, but we give ourselves to them anyway, we are showing what it looks like for God to give of himself, even his own life, to make us insiders, children of God. That's the hospitality that verse 2 calls for. Verse 3 gives another mark of gratitude. It says, remember those who are in prison and those who are mistreated as if you were there with them. I think it's especially talking about people who are in prison or mistreated because of the gospel. It's talking about people who are being persecuted. The brothers and sisters of the Christian community who've been thrown in jail because of their confession, because they were talking about the gospel. And I don't want to lose that focus. I really do think that's the main point of this passage. And, and even though we don't have a lot of that around here, really any of that, in our, in our life, I think the call for us is to be aware of what Christians in other part of the world are, are going through and to look for ways to minister to them and encourage them, however that might be. That said, though, I want to I lock in on another implication of this call that I think does hit us directly, even though we're not being thrown in prison for our faith. I think really underlying this, what he's after is empathy. Empathy is to is to connect yourself to what other people are going through, to see things through their eyes and to imaginatively put yourself in their shoes and to even literally make their problems your problems. And that's what he's calling for in verse 3. He says, remember those who are in prison as if you were in prison with them. Remember those who are mistreated as if you were being mistreated because they are you. You are attached to them organically. So what happens to them happens to you as well. He's calling for that kind of empathy. And that kind of empathy, I think, is only possible if you're living from a place of gratitude for what God has given you in Jesus because it is radically unnatural. What empathy is calling for here is to to think of that other person as yourself. What comes natural for us is to distinguish ourselves from other people. We know who we are because of who we're not as often as because of who we are, right? Right? We draw lines, boundaries between us and other people because that helps us know who we are. 
We, we often like to dress differently from other people in distinctive ways. We like to have a unique and pithy Facebook status updates that set us apart from the banal Facebook statuses of the rest of the world, right? We, uh, we, we even, even in areas like parenting, home decorating, or you know, plug in whatever you will, we like to be distinctive. We try to identify ourselves by being something that others are not. Um, that was the driving force behind my graduate school education. I mean, they're constantly putting it in front of you. You've got to come up with something original. You've got to, every time you read a book, you need to be looking for what's not in that book, for what's wrong with it, so that you can fill in that gap and justify your existence as a person, right? That's the driving force behind graduate school is distinguishing yourself from other people. And that's a very natural thing to do. But if your life is defined by gratitude from what you've been given, from the new identity that's come to you not because you deserve it, but because God gave it to you, then that makes a whole other way of being possible. It allows you not to need to distinguish yourself from other people to become comfortable with yourself, but gives you a security that allows you to give yourself to them, to identify with them, to say what's true of you is true of me. It allows you to say, when you mourn, I mourn. When you're broken, I'm broken. When food is a problem for you, it's a problem for me too. There are any number of examples we could give of how to make this happen in practice. I think that the the prison example that comes here in this text is a great one. And not just for those who are imprisoned for their faith, but for who are imprisoned for any reason at all. We're prone, here's what comes natural to us when someone's in prison, we're prone to look down on them, to think about what they did to deserve their place in prison, to celebrate maybe, secretly, the fact that we didn't do anything to deserve being where they are. And it's that distance, that othering, that they, we are not like them, that keeps us, I think, from engaging with them and ministering to them. But if our lives are, are defined by gratitude for what we have been given in Jesus, well, then we are going to identify with them to make their problems our problems, to go to them where they are. And it doesn't matter if they deserve what they got because you know what? We deserve a lot that we don't get because of God's grace to us. So we're going to show that grace to other people. The same thing could be said for the sort of uh, holy trifecta of persons that, that, that God's people are called to love well. The poor, the widowed and orphaned, and the, and the aliens or the immigrants. All through the Old Testament and even the New Testament, those classes of people who are sort of the, the, the classically helpless, who have nothing, they're the ones we're supposed to show our greatest love to as a way of picturing what God, how God treats us. So think about what it would look like to relate to the poor as someone who empathizes with them, like verse 3 calls for, as opposed to distinguishes yourself from them because of what you have and they don't have. Now, if, from a policy perspective, we often focus in on whether or not the poor deserve their condition. And I think that's a fair thing to ask from the perspective of policy, right? It, it, about how to, how to help the poor, the poor best from, from the kind of laws that we pass. But from the perspective of the Christian church, that is an irrelevant question. It doesn't matter whether they deserve their condition or whether they don't. The point is that they have a problem. And in, in, in our economy, 
their problems become our problems. If you're hungry, then I'm going to be hungry. If, if food is a problem for you to buy, I'm going to make it my problem to give you food. That's, that's the sort of trajectory of a grateful life. It's a life that's giving and not, not concerned with what's deserved. Christian empathy sees their problems and takes it on as our own. I think of our own work among refugees and, um, and, and what it would take for us to imaginatively put ourselves into their, into their place. To imagine what it would be like to move to a brand new place where you know nothing, where you don't speak the language, where the culture is completely foreign, where you don't have family, when you're coming from a place where family is everything. Can you imagine what, I, what life would be like for someone who's here as a refugee? Our call as Christians is not to pretend like they're not here in our city, but to do our best to try to understand what it's like to be them so that we, we can then minister to them. There are any number of ways you can do this. You know, uh, we have ways of getting you into relationships with them. That's the best and most effective way. But don't even don't discount the value of reading a good book about the immigrant experience. Read something like The Kite Runner. Watch a documentary on the lost boys of Sudan, what their lives were like here in America trying to establish themselves without parents or without any friends in this country. And when you see it from their perspective, empathy that's called for in this verse becomes possible for you. And it drives you through your gratitude for what you've received to give yourself to those who have needs. That's what's being called for here. There's a fourth mark of a grateful life. Verse four gives it to us. A grateful life is marked by marital fidelity. Verse four has to do with marriage. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all, And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. I think that the the, the main point of the verse, the thrust of it, is is clear enough. Marriage is of utmost significance. You've got to honor it. You've got to protect its sacredness. And that, that the focus of that protection is on the sexual relationship between a man and a wife. The call is to keep that component undefiled untainted by something outside of it, by some foreign or corrupting element. And the promise here is that God is going to judge those who don't protect that component of marriage. Again, I think what's meant here on the surface is clear enough, that that sex is a gift to the married. That sex outside of marriage, if you are married, or before marriage, if you aren't married, is something that God takes very, very seriously. Now, I want to let the weight of what this text says, fall on us fully. But before I do that, before I reflect more on it, I want to speak directly to those of you who perhaps have engaged in sexual activity outside of your marriage, either before you were married or or during your marriage. For those of you who have repented of that sin and are wondering whether or not this text means there's no hope for you, I I want to make it as clear as possible to you that 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 is not the case. That what he describes here as a defilement does have a meaning that we're going to look at carefully, but it does not mean that you are past redeeming for what you've done. You are not damaged goods. I realize there's, there's likely some pain associated with what you've done that's unique to that, and that you'll have to, you'll have to face that up and, and, and work through it. But here's what, I want you to, here's what I want you to hear before I get into the details of this text. This is what Paul says from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. 
Paul's, Paul's writing to, the, to his friends and acknowledges that the sexually immoral and the adulterous will not inherit the kingdom of God, he says. And such were some of you, he tells them that. I get that you are guilty here. But then he says to them, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And if I could add to Paul, I would say, and that is who you are. That is who you are. And I want to make that qualification clear here because I'm about to let the full weight of this text fall on us. Now, if you're like me, you're breathing the same cultural air that I am, you get to a passage like this one, and it's not immediately clear why this particular command makes the cut. Why is it so important to remain sexually faithful and abstinent outside of marriage? Why does God care so much about this particular kind of sin that he promises to judge it in this way? The reason it strikes us as odd, I think, is that we've come to see sex as something less sacred than what the New Testament authors saw it as. Uh, we, we see it as a recreational activity as often as, as some sort of sacred bond in marriage. And it would be like God, seeing that God cares about sex in this way sounds a whole lot like he's threatening to judge people who like sports more than they like music, you know, who like one kind of food more than another kind of food. That's, that's where sex has come in our consciousness, I think. It's to just a matter of, of preference on the level of what kind of things you like to spend your time doing, what sort of things you enjoy. And it doesn't make sense that God would put this kind of weight on it, that he would see it as a mark, your performance here in marriage, as a mark of a grateful life. What's the connection between the gospel and this command? I think that why sexual fidelity in marriage is so important has a lot to do with something about the nature of sex and something about the nature of marriage. Something about the nature of sex and something about the nature of marriage. I'm going to speak to both of those really quickly to make sure that we get what's intended for us here. I think it's really interesting on the nature of sex, how often sex and money are paired up throughout Scripture and how similar those urges are in our experience. Both are universal troubles, right? Everybody deals with them. I remember a a seasoned marriage counselor, premarital uh, and marriage counselor told me one time that, that every couple he had ever seen, the two things they struggled with were money and sex, every couple. And they're universal, I think, in part because they are universal areas of dissatisfaction. To give in to a relentless pursuit of sexual pleasure is to give in to the quest for self-gratification. It's to express as a way of life a fundamental dissatisfaction. And that's why I think mastering yourself here, putting boundaries around how you use this gift, is tied to gratitude to God. Because not needing more and more of that thing is a way of expressing that you are satisfied and truly grateful for what God has given you in Christ. That it is enough making everything else, icing on the cake, so to speak, gifts of God that do not define us even though we enjoy them. The call for for sort of sexual liberation, for the end to oppression and repression, like the, the 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 call that's been famous ever since someone like like Kinsey did his famous studies on on, on sexual practices back in the middle of the twentieth century, is is just the air we breathe. But guys like Kinsey, 
are proving the point here because they are so relentless in their pursuit of new and and different ways to enjoy sexual pleasure that they are proving they're never fully satisfied. They're just they, they never get enough. They are they are they are making the point that a grateful life is a life where boundaries are okay, where they enhance rather than detract from the enjoyment that you have. Best analogy I could think of this week for how this works is one of these steakhouses that puts steak on a buffet, on an all-you-can-eat buffet. Isn't there just something deeply wrong about that? It just misses the genre, right? I mean, all-you-can-eat buffets make sense for certain foods. I don't know, mashed potatoes or pasta, even fried shrimp. I don't know. But steak on an all-you-can-eat buffet, is there anything that's more expressive of a dissatisfaction of a sort of lowest common denominator consumption-oriented, quantity over quality drive or impulse that's in us than than putting steak on an all-you-can-eat buffet. They're all cooked exactly the same way. There's nothing personal. There's nothing about you in that steak. Whereas a good steak, right, is supposed to be it's supposed to be something not savored in, in great quantity, but, but in quality, a quality that's, that's tailored to you, that you choose and value and savor and love, right? To put it on the buffet just destroys the whole purpose of it. And I think that, that there is an analogy here. I don't want you pushing that too far into any of the details. There's not a, lot of, not, not a lot intended there, except for we just, we express by this one sacred thing. Something about where we stand with God and whether or not he is enough for us. Am I saying that satisfaction in the gospel and justification by grace is the key to a better sex life? I think yes, in a way. Because as our satisfaction in the gospel permeates our lives, we are freed up not to treat our spouses as objects for self-gratification, as those with insecurity and insufficiency are, are wont to do, but we are freed to treat them as objects of love and service and God-given joy. That's how it expresses gratitude. And that's why the nature of sex means that it really matters how we choose to use it. There's also something about the nature of marriage. Marriage is not a random human uh, institution designed for some sort of evolutionary advantage. Marriage is designed by God for a very concrete purpose, to express something about the depths of the love that he has for his people. Marriage is exclusive Because the fully satisfying love between God and his people must also be exclusive. And God is jealous for that. The reason that the relationship between God and his people is defined by by a for or against idolatry rant all through the Old Testament. where, Where God's people either choose idolatry or you're hearing the prophets, God through the prophets calling them back away from idolatry. Is that God's love for his people is meant to be jealous and exclusive. And to throw it away is to, is to make a, a horrible statement about how satisfying he is. Here's the way one of my favorite uh, authors has described this. He says, it's not as if, It is not that God looks down from heaven to discern some human relationship that might prove to be a fitting symbol of his love. You get that? It's not like God looked at the human experience and said, hmm, I think that marriage might help me explain what my love is like. 
The reality is the other way around. When God formed Eve from the body of Adam, he was providing the means by which we might be prepared to understand the joy of an exclusive love. Only in that way could we be prepared to grasp something of the burning intensity of the divine love. So in marriage, fidelity here, keeping marriage sacred and honored in spite of how hard it is and how much we fail in it, is a picture of God's patient love towards us. It's a picture of our satisfaction in Him and what He offers to us. It's, it's, a, it's a picture of how we are resting in Him in the face of all competing gods. To take sex outside of that intended purpose in marriage, well, that would be like taking a beautifully written love letter and using it for toilet paper. Right? It might get the job done to an extent, but it defiles the purpose of that piece of paper. It's debased and insulting and relatively unfulfilling use of what's on that paper. It's detached from what it was meant to accomplish and it is ungrateful in the extreme. So a grateful life is, is marked by marital fidelity. Now finally, and I'm out of time, I get that, A grateful life is marked by contentment. I love that this passage builds to verses 5 and 6 because I think it's been working from verses 5 and 6 all along. That, that maybe the most effective way of saying, that to, of saying what it is to live is if you're grateful for what God offers you is to say, if you're grateful for what God offers you, you live a life of contentment, of rest, of satisfaction. And the best way to picture that is with money. Because like sex, money is this thing that drives people. It is this relentless thing that's never fully satisfied, that always drives you wanting more. And if you give yourself to it, it takes over your life and corrupts you. Money it can be a, is, a, is a way of expressing all of the things that are worst about our insecure identities. It ex- we, we fear not having enough of it. We are prideful when we have more than other people. We are greedy when we desperately want more. We get angry when something costs us the money that we think that we need. It's, the, it's a wellspring of all of the things in us that do, are not marked by gratitude for what we've received in God and in, in his gospel. So a life of gratitude represses pushes back against, roots out the love of money. The promise is that Jesus has come to us, that in him he is, God is truly with us and will never leave us. That's what verse 5 says. Don't, don't worry about money. Free yourself from the love of money because I am with you and I will never leave you. It's this kind of promise that, that frees us up to live like we're living in tents. That was the earlier example in, in chapter 11. The, the, the heroes of the faith lived like this world wasn't their home. They didn't lay foundations for a house but just propped up a tent because they were not bound to love of money. Moses, we're told, turned down the riches of Egypt because he preferred the reproach of Christ. That is a picture of a grateful life. Contentment as our goal is this. This is what it means, and this, this is where I'll close. Contentment as a goal, it means this. God is working us to the place where nothing matters more to us than the fact that God has come to us in Jesus and will never leave us. God is working us through pleasure and pain 
to the place where nothing matters more to us than the fact that God has come to us in Jesus and will never leave us. A grateful life is a life of contentment. God, help us because we are not content. We trust that your spirit is working us to that goal. We give ourselves to you for that purpose. We want it. We know what it is to live from fear and insecurity, to struggle with greed and with pride. And those, those things do not feel right. But our, our minds and hearts are divided. They are divided by a love for things that never satisfy and a hatred for what those things do to us. And what we want is hearts and minds that are joined together by a deep and underlying satisfaction in all that you are for us. Would you satisfy us for Jesus' sake, we pray. In his name, amen.